morning we are going to be in Psalm 133. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 133 as we continue with our study in the Psalms of Ascent. So throughout this season of Lent, we've been studying these Psalms. There's a collection of 15 of them in the Psalms from 120 to 134, uh, of which that they were sung on the way up to Jerusalem during the different times, the three times a year, the celebrations that the Israelites went to Jerusalem they would, study, they would sing these songs on their way. And so uh, Psalm 133 is one of them. And so uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, jump in and uh, get to work. So please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, for generations you have called men and women to be your servants, to be part of what you are doing in this world. And we believe you are still calling us to join in on that great work that you are doing here today. Lord, help us today to have a little bit clearer vision, a little bit clearer understanding of what it means to serve you, to to walk with you, and to most importantly walk together uh, in unity with our brothers and sisters. Help us to have a clearer vision of the call you have, the, the deep call you have on our lives, and the deep dependence on the reality of your sovereignty and love grace. God, we pray for uh, the kids of our church as they are up in Grace Place. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, for the leaders, we pray for the kids that they are encouraged, that they are challenged, that they are uh, learning about who you are and how much you love them. God, this morning we lift up our own hearts of confession as we are in this season of Lent, this season of uh, preparation for Good Friday and for Easter. And in this season we have to take into account the fact that it is our sin that put him there. It is our sin that put Christ on that cross. And so, Lord, we lift up to you this morning our hearts, our confessions of sins of commission and omission, the places where we have intentionally chosen to rebel against you and the places where we knew what was right, we knew what was good, and failed to act. Lord, we confess these things to you, and we know that because of who you are, that If we confess our sins, you are faithful and good to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray for our church community, for our body that you have put together, that you have established, that we uh, continue to be drawn closer together as we continue to take steps to return to some uh, more regular routines and rhythms. Lord, we pray that you would continue to add to our community, that you would grow us both numerically but more importantly Uh, in a depth and love and knowledge of you. God, we pray for our neighborhood. We pray for Roscoe Village. We pray that you would give us more and more roads, more and more inroads uh, to connect and find ways to establish um, ourselves in this neighborhood and and find ways to let people know that there is uh, grace and rest and comfort and peace to be found in you and that this is a place where they can come and be and exist and be nurtured, and be loved. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. I pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. The New Testament has many different ways of describing what the church is, what Christian community is to be. We're a body with many parts in 1 Corinthians 10. We're the bride of Christ in uh, Revelation 19 and 21. 
We're the family of God in 2 Corinthians 6, and we are the household of God in 1 Timothy 3. All of these have the same idea with them. It's many parts coming together, united together for one purpose, for one goal, working together. Unity. Being one. I was at a prayer gathering this week uh, that was put together by a couple of pastors, and uh, it was geared towards pastors on the north side of Chicago, and really the whole purpose of it was giving us space to kind of just exist and be and be together and worship and lift each other up in prayer. It was a really, it was a really sweet time. I got to meet, make some new friends. It was really cool. Um, but during that time, we had space within what we were doing to just kind of share what God was doing in our hearts. Uh, we could share verses. We could share uh, a word, whatever God was laying on our hearts at that time. And one of the pastors in the room, as we were praying for us as leaders and for churches and for the city, um, he felt led to to read out Ephesians 4, and I think it's fitting for what we're studying this morning. Ephesians 4, the the beginning verses of Ephesians 4 says, uh, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That idea of unity of the Spirit, that's what today's psalm is about. That bright, sweet, refreshing unity of God among the people of God. And so as I said, we're going to be in Psalm 133 this morning. I'm going to read it. You know, get comfortable. It's a long one, so let's just get through it all, and then we'll we'll go back. Song of Ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This unity is good and pleasant. The psalmist starts out, this is David writing, this is one of four psalms in the Psalms of Ascent that are attributed to David. And he starts right at the top, behold. Behold is biblical word for pay attention. Don't miss this, don't ignore this, don't skip over this. This is important, what I'm about to tell you. Brothers and sisters, dwelling in unity is good and pleasant. Note that it doesn't say it's easy and perfect. Unity takes work, and it isn't always simple. But it is good and pleasant. When I think of unity among God's people, I think of uh, uh, a small group that I was put into that I joined my senior year of college. Um, those of you who remember your senior year of college, you're not literally looking to make new friends. You're looking to just kind of keep your head down and get out. Uh, but I got uh, roped into this group where the chaplain of the school I was at was looking for a way to make a new uh, form of Bible study that would happen on campus. And so he, we were kind of his guinea pigs for this. He put together, there was eight or nine of us that he put together in this group. Um, and this group, the, the, the idea was to be more than a Bible study. It was to be something where we were together, engaged in each other's lives. And uh, so there was time to study scripture, but it was also times of confession of sin. There was times of prayer. 
Um, and so it was kind of this idea of let's get beyond just getting together, reading a passage and leaving, but let's actually engage in each other's lives. And it was impactful, it was important, and it is, um, what, 14 years later, there, a few of the guys from that original group are some of my closest friends, my closest confidants, and guys that um, I have uh, great trust and respect for and have an openness and a vulnerability with that I have with very few other people um, because of the time we spent together. It is this picture in my head, these images of um, times together where there was no putting on a show, there was no putting on a mask, there was no uh, fakeness where we could just be and exist and be real and we could ask questions, ask questions that we felt like we couldn't ask in church. We could uh, work through things and be honest with one another in ways that we felt like we couldn't do with any other relationships in our circle at the time. And I have these, these images of my head of these times sitting around um, in coffee shops and dorm rooms where uh, it just felt everything was good, everything was right, and it wasn't always easy, and there was a lot of messy things that were dealt with, but it just felt like everything was peaceful, even for just those brief minutes. And I think those are the kind of images that David's trying to get at here. He says that the unity, how good and pleasant it is when the brothers and sisters dwell in unity. It's good. All throughout Genesis 1, we see God's creation is good. He makes light, he makes grass, he makes the birds, he makes the monkeys. All of it is good. It's right. It's correct. It's appropriate. It's excellent. It is what it should be. Unity among the people of God is what it is supposed to be. There's almost a sense of obligation. It's, it's what's appropriate. It's what's expected. It's what's supposed to happen. Unity. It's good. And it's also pleasant. It's delightful. It's lovely. When this word is used musically, it's singing sweet songs. So think Adele. It's what's supposed to happen. So good is what is supposed to happen, and pleasant is to delight in that, to enjoy that, to celebrate that, to have fun with it. Good and pleasant. If you want a uh, homework assignment for the week, if you want to look up what, where these words show up together throughout the Bible, they do a couple of places. One of them is actually just in the next, uh, in Psalm, two Psalms later, in Psalm 135.3. It says, praise the Lord, for the Lord is, what's that word? Next slide. Uh, it's not there. All right. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for he is pleasant. For it is pleasant. It is good. The name of the Lord is good. And to worship him, to sing his name, it is pleasant. We praise the Lord. We praise Yahweh because to praise him is what should be. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, it is good. He deserves it. And as we do that, as we worship him and celebrate him and praise him and sing to him, it is enjoyable, it's a delight, it's fun, it's pleasant. Unity among the people of God is what is expected, what should be. And when it is, it is a delight, it's enjoyable. So what does he mean by unity? Literally, it's together. That can be 
regarded literally as what's happening while they're singing this song, right? They're coming together, literally people, families, extended families, friends. They are journeying together. They're meeting up on this road, heading up to Jerusalem. They are gathering together, and they're in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was not a huge city, so they're literally just together, shoulder to shoulder at times. Everybody together, regardless of who you were or where you came from, everyone was united together physically to celebrate and worship God. Being together is important. Being physically together is important. We talked about it two weeks ago looking at Psalm 122. That desire to have God's people worshiping together, physically together, and something happens, something supernatural happens in when the people of God are gathered together. How great it is when we are together. But this unity can go beyond just the physical. It can refer to the spiritual and relational togetherness. It's the idea of having one accord, a unitedness. See, Christians are made for community. We talked about Genesis, everything is good, right? Adam is in the garden, and God looks down and God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Before sin enters the world, there was something in creation that wasn't good, and it was the fact that Adam was alone. Adam didn't have community. The creation of humans wasn't good until Adam had a suitable mate. God's people are just that. We are a people, multiple, plural Jesus, when he was in ministry, had his 12 disciples. And then even within that, he had his inner three that he poured into. When Jesus ascends to heaven after defeating sin and death and hell on the cross and raising from the dead, what happens? He ascends and everybody looks around and says, now what do we do? And the church begins. Why? Because we're made to be together. We're made to do this together. And not just together physically, but united together spiritually and relationally. Paul says it this way in Psalm, in uh, Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The same mind, the same love, full accord, one mind. A unity in Christ among believers. But again, this isn't perfect. It will take time, and it will take work, and it will take humility and maturity. Because those things are necessary for Christian community, because in Christian community, we have to approach that scary S word, submission. We have to be willing to submit to one another for the benefit of the community, for the benefit of the group. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't have to look very far for an example for this one. Our elder board of this church, we do not agree on every decision. We don't agree on every idea that is brought up. We also don't move forward on things unless we are united, unless we are willing to mutually submit to one another. That means we're willing to submit even when we don't agree. And we don't do it begrudgingly. We don't do it kicking and screaming. We do it in a matter that promotes unity and togetherness for the body of believers in reverence to Christ. This unity, this togetherness is an intentional act of mutual submission one to another. This unity has, with it comes openness, a genuineness of relationship. How else can we be unified together and connected if we aren't real with each other, if we aren't actually sharing our lives with one another, our burdens with one another? It 
can't be done. And so with that openness then has to also come support. Unity happens by the people of God coming together to lift one another up, to share one another's burdens, to share one another and walk with one another in our hardships, our depressions, our loss, our pain, our sorrow, but also in our joy and good and celebratory times. Unity looks like Paul's encouragement at the end of Colossians 3, where he tells them, put on men as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Forgiveness, bearing with one another, love, humility, patience, that's what unity looks like. That's what the unity of Christ does in us and should look like in us. Let the word of Christ, he calls us, dwell in you richly. But the word of Christ means we got to actually be in the text and in the word. And let it teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Letting the word of God not only transform our hearts, but transform our language, transform the way we engage with one another and talk to one another. Unity is an intentional building one another up, lifting one another up. And when that happens, when that is actually being pursued in Christian circles it is what it should be among God's people, and it is a delight. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this next point, but sadly, we do know that Christian community, as I said, it's not perfect. And not only that, it can be at times hostile, toxic, and painful. Many of us carry our baggage, carry scars of previous hurt and abuses that we have experienced in Christian community. And if that's you this morning, as a pastor, as a brother in Christ, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you've experienced that. The community of believers is not perfect, but it should always be safe. And if down the road you experience some kind of pain caused by those within Christian circles, know that God is not for chaos. He is not for disunity or abuses of power. He is for unity. He is for justice. He is for righteousness among his people. And I would encourage you, do not forsake Christian community because you have been hurt. Retired pastor uh, Lee Eklov writes, when Christians look for a church, they are looking for a home. The Bible knows nothing of Christians disconnected from other believers. Jesus' people are a family. The Christian life cannot be lived properly as a loner. Do not give up on the church. Because when you do experience the good and pleasant unity, it is revitalizing rest that nourishes you in a way that you didn't even know you needed. It is something altogether other. It is these glimpses, these momentary glimpses of what it will be like on that day, what it will be like 
when we are in that place, when we are with Christ, when he is reigning and ruling. We get these glimpses here, these little moments where God shows us, he gives us this little peek. This is what relationships are meant to be. This is what was supposed to happen before the fall, and this is what is waiting for you. Christian unity is good and pleasant. It is something altogether other. And so David gives us two examples in this very short psalm of what this unity is like. The first one, he says, is like, this unity is like precious oil. In verse 2, it says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. This word precious is the same as we saw as good in verse 1. It is the right and excellent oil. This oil that is poured on the head, it rolls down on the head, onto the beard, onto the collar of the robe. Specifically, he refers to the beard of Aaron. He's talking about the anointing of Aaron and of anyone as a priest, but Aaron was anointed as the first of the high priests. Anointing oil was poured on the head as a symbol of God's blessing or God's provision or God's comfort and presence over a person. And this oil that he talks about here, this oil is a special oil. It's a reference that goes back to Exodus 30. You don't have to turn there. I'll read uh, some bits of it for you. In Exodus 30, it says, Take the, the finest spices, liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of this a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. And then it goes on and it says, basically, you take this oil and the tabernacle, the, the moving temple that the Israelites had at that time, they didn't have a set place because they were constantly journeying. So they had this basically big tent where they would go to worship. And so the instruction from the Lord is, make this special oil and then just cover the tabernacle in it. Basically, if it's something to be used in worship, throw some of this oil on it, cover the whole thing because it's holy. And when you're done doing all of that, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It should not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. This precious oil, this good oil, it was made for a specific purpose as part of worship. It was sacred. It was set apart. The unity, the good and pleasant unity of the brothers and sisters of Christ, when God's people are unified, it is like this precious oil. It is sacred. It is holy. It is set apart. That unity is something completely other. As 1 Peter 2 tells us, we are a royal priesthood. Just as Aaron was anointed as priest over the people, we too, by the Spirit of Christ, have been anointed as priests to one another. We too reconcile on one another's behalfs to God. There is a holiness and set-apartness about the unity of God's people. It is sacred and special, and we, as entering into the, the family of God, have within us a responsibility as royal priesthood to serve one another to go to God on one another's behalf and to serve one another in however that may look. The unity among the, among the believers of God is special as it points others to God. It is sacred. This oil that David refers to, it was 
It was tangible. It was fragrant. It had a sweet smell to it. Myrrh and cinnamon, aromatic cane, cassia, it left a lasting smell. Oils like these were used to give some refreshment to the skin and body in the very dry land. But also, they kind of use it as, in a way that we use deodorant. And everyone thinks for a second, did I put deodorant on this morning? Maybe. The spacing tells me otherwise, but that's fine. These oils would be used to make a sweet smell. And the smell lingered. It was thick. And the oil itself was thick. You can see it running down, poured on the head of Aaron, running down his head, into his beard, down onto the collar of his robes. If you were there, you could see it. You could see it dripping down on him. For You could smell it. Aaron himself, he could feel it as it moved down his skin. Even after washing it away, it would have still been a feeling of it being there. It was tangible. It was experiential. The unity of the people of God should be tangible. It's something to be seen. It's something to be observed, experienced. It's not just a collection of people in a specific building for an hour or two, once or twice a week. It is the way that we live. It is the way that we engage with one another outside of the church, how we engage with the world around us. Our relationships, especially within the church community, have the ability to go deeper and allow for a vulnerability because we have been set free from guilt, shame, fear, doubt, and dread. Jesus paid for all of that and defeated all of that at the cross. That reality changes the way we as Christians can interact with one another, knowing that our identity is found in this being the children of God and our dependence on him allows for us to be open and honest with one another. Now, this isn't necessarily every Christian needs to share every aspect of their lives with every other Christian all the time. But for those in your inner circle, your closer connections, those relationships should look different than your non-Christian friends and family. And I shared about this group I was in in college. And so we would meet once a week at like 6 a.m. Again, senior in college, 6 a.m., it was rough. We'd get together, and the, the basic time, we'd get together and we'd read scripture together, and then we'd break off into groups. We'd do some time of confession of sin, like out loud to one another, and we'd pray, wrap up, go about our day. So we did this for a couple of weeks. Get together, up early, went through the whole thing, would leave. Come back the next week, nothing changed. It was like the same confessions were happening, we were just kind of going through the motions over and over again. And after three or four weeks of this, 6 a.m. with no results, I was ready to tap out. I was ready to be done. Because what are we doing? We're not, nothing's changing. Nothing, nothing's happening. And I started talking to some of the other guys in the group, and they were like, yeah, what, what, what is the point here? And we realized we were missing something. We were missing the relational aspect. We were getting together once a week, and within this group, there's eight or nine of us, there were these pockets of friendships, but there were some of us who didn't really know each other, didn't really have a relationship, and yet we're getting together once a week and like sharing our dirty laundry and sharing these sin confessions that we have, right? But nothing was changing because there, there's no relationship there. There's no trust being built. And so we decided, all right, once a week, we're going to have a meal together. Whether it be dinner, lunch, whatever it is, we're going to get together, we're going to eat together. And very quickly, one meal turned into two or three a week. 
those pockets of relationships that were already there, they began to get strengthened. And the people who didn't really know each other started to hang out more, started to be involved in each other's lives. And pretty soon, the nine of us, that was kind of all we kind of hung out with. It was, we kind of became this little pack, this little team. And what we started to see when we would get together at this 6 a.m. thing was that life change was starting to happen. Was that this, this built-in accountability and the fact that it went beyond just, I'm going to see these guys once a week, so i got to have something to say. But rather, it was checking on one another during the week. It was walking through these things together. We started to see sins be overcome. We started to see people start to deal with some of the grief, some of the burden that they were wrestling with, and actually see progress in. Why? Because now we weren't doing these things alone. We were engaged with one another. We were encountering this, these things together. As I said, today, there's two of those guys from that group. We're together. It, it just works because we've been willing to be vulnerable with each other in the good and the bad. And it has produced in us an observable difference in the way that we communicate with one another and interact because we aren't hiding anything from each other. Even when it would be, let me tell you, much easier and much safer for the relationship itself, we're able to be open with each other because we're engaged in each other's lives. And we have been for a long time. And it's not just the big important stuff. It's the day-to-day nitty-gritty stuff. The unity of God's people has got to be tangible. I want you to try for a second and just, just try and picture this, this, this idea that David is writing about here in verse 2. Try and picture in your mind the oil being poured on Aaron's head. He's wearing this white robe, and they're pouring this oil on his head, and you can see it running down his face. It gets into his beard. And back then, beards weren't, like, maintained and, like, trimmed and shaped. It wasn't beard balm. Like, they were big, gnarly beards. And there was so much oil that it's running down into his beard, and it drips down from his beard onto the collar of his robes, staining his robes a little bit. When I think of that picture, I don't know about you, I, I mean, for one, you think messy. But it's a lot of oil. It's an exaggerated amount of oil. Anointing a head with oil can be for protection, can be for healing, can be for blessing. It is a tangible, physical manifestation. It is a reminder of the way God pours himself out for us. Even look at the way that David explains it in verse 2. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. On the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It's coming down from the top. Just as the Lord's blessings of protection and healing, even unity pours out and rains down from him. All that we have, we receive from the Lord. It is him pouring out, pouring down to us. It has always been this way. That God would come to us. It is God who creates this world, and then he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. He shows up. And when the relationship between God and man is broken by sin, God continues to show up. He continues to come down and meet us, whether it's as a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a a quiet breeze or an audible voice or as the flesh flesh and bone, fully God, fully human, Jesus Christ. God comes down and meets us. He's been pouring out. He's been raining down blessing, protection, healing, gifts, and even his very presence since the beginning. 
It comes down and it is sacred, it's holy, it's set apart, it's tangible, it's an exaggerated amount. When God shows up, when God gets involved, he doesn't just meet needs, he exceeds needs because that's who he is. David gives us just one more picture of what this unity is like. He says in verse 3, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The dew of Hermon. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in Israel. It is 9,232 feet tall. It is perpetually covered in snow, and it is so large uh, and over so every other mountain that it collects most of the dew. Mount Zion, in comparison, is 2,510 feet tall. Huge difference. The dew of Mount Hermon would flow down and seep through the rock and actually flee, feed into the Jordan, where the Jordan River begins. And so the, the very life-giving water that the Israelites lived off of, that Mount Zion was refreshed by, comes from Mount Hermon. The refreshing dew coming down symbolizes the unity that God gives. That dew is refreshing, nourishing, life-giving, just as the unity of God's people is refreshing, unifying, and life-giving. The dew falls down, falls on the mountains of Zion. In the Bible, Zion is oftentimes another name for Jerusalem. Mount Zion, it's where Jerusalem is located. It's life-giving. This unity between the people of God, it is life-giving, it is refreshing. It's a refreshing thing, for there on that mountain of Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Here's where unity is found, David says. Mount Zion, where the people of God gather together, where they gather with one another. On their way, as they sang this song, they were on their way to be gathered together. They were gathering together to be unified with one voice, one worship of the Lord. There was unity among the people. For it is there at Mount Zion that the Lord has commanded the blessing, David says. Not some blessing, not a blessing, but the blessing. Life forevermore. Life eternal. Now we know, just as they knew, just as the writer of Hebrews knows and writes in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how many times you went to the tabernacle with a bull, with a goat, with a pigeon, no matter how many pounds of offering you burnt up, it wasn't going to save you. No matter how many times you come to God with your goodness, with your impressiveness, with your abilities, no matter how many times you show up to God with your hands full of, look how impressive I am, it cannot, will not ever save you. Life forevermore is a blessing. It is a gift given to you by the great giver of gifts, God himself. There in that place, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, as the song Beautiful Scandalous Night says, on the hillside you will be delivered. At the foot of the cross you will be justified. David, writing as a prophet, writing, looking into the future, into a future he doesn't get to see but he knows is coming. He writes of the blessing, the blessing life forevermore, where it will be given to any and all who would put their faith in Jesus. 
because it is there on Mount Zion, it is there outside those gates of Jerusalem that the son of the carpenter is executed. This teacher from Nazareth, known as the king of the Jews, was killed. And in doing so, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. On, every, on him, every sin was laid, from Adam and Eve biting into that fruit, all the way up to the cross as they spit and they mocked and they heckled him as he died in front of their face for their sins. And every sin that will be committed until Christ comes back, all of it was laid on him. The full and complete wrath of God towards sin was poured out on Jesus. The full and complete justice and righteousness of God towards sin was poured out on Jesus. There on that mountain, life forevermore was made available. The blessing was poured out like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. And it is because of his death and his resurrection that the sweet and right unity is made available to the people of God. This unity that David is writing about cannot happen without Christ, without Christ in your life, without a trust and faith in him, in his death and resurrection. This unity among God's people is good and pleasant. It is like the precious oil. It is sacred and set apart. It's tangible. You can feel it. You can taste it. You can experience it. It is extravagant. It is abundant. Unity among God's people gives more than you were expecting, more than you could have hoped for, more than you would have thought was possible in human relationship. It's messy, and it takes time, but when you find it, how sweet and how refreshing it is, how life-giving it is. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And we can dwell in unity because unity was delivered to us. It was given to us as a gift through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. We can have reconciliation amongst each other because we were first reconciled by God to God. To God by God. We were first made right in our vertical relationship with God through Jesus. And that allows us to make right our horizontal relationships. Will we do it perfectly? No. Is it hard? Yeah. But when it happens, those sweet moments, those glimpses of what it's going to be like when we get to experience them forever, those places, those relationships, it is like precious oil, like refreshing dew. It is a great blessing and a blessing that reminds us of the way things should be and will be on that day when we meet Christ. When good and pleasant aren't ideals to strive for, but there is a day coming when good and pleasant will be the norm. When all things will be as they should be, where we will delight and enjoy and rejoice in the presence of the one who delivers us unity, to the one who delivers us life forevermore, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, and we, God, we ask that you would create in us, stir us, in us a delight in you, an enjoyment of you. Stir in us a delight and an enjoyment in the community that you have given to us. Lord, you call us to be the lights of the world. You invite us to be part of 
what you are doing in this world to point people to yourself, to redeem all things back to yourself. And that's a, a big and weighty thing. And we know that you have equipped us with the Holy Spirit. We know that we are not ever alone, that you are with us always. But beyond that, you have given us the gift of community. You have made us to be people who long for it, who yearn for it. That even as we've seen in the last couple of years, the times where we were physically separated, we, we got as close as we could. We rang doorbells. We waved from cars. We jumped on Zoom meetings. We did everything we could to still have an interaction because you have made us to be about community. And when it comes to your kids, when it comes to your sons and daughters, there is a level of unity, a level of relationship that supersedes anything else that we can have on this earth. God, let us not take it for granted. Help us to pursue it. Help us to be open and honest. You have given us this gift, this ability to be able to strip away all the distractions, all of the reasons why it's easy to avoid people and avoid relationships. You have taken those things and said, I paid for those. Those things are gone. Those things are gone. Just be together. Engage with this world together. Life is hard enough on our own, but we get to do it together. We get to lift one another up. God, help us to be a people that lift each other up. You call us the living stones of your temple. Help us to be those living stones, to hold one another up in the good and in the bad, to celebrate, to not envy or get angry or jealous, but to celebrate the good, to celebrate the wins, to celebrate the, the joyful occasions. And when it's hard, help us to be each other's strength. Which also means we got to let each other in. God, give us, give us the ability to be vulnerable with one another. Get beyond how are you, good, fine, tired, busy. But to truly get into the knowing each other's heart. God, help us to be vulnerable, to be humble, and to encourage one another. God, you have given us this gift of unity, this gift of togetherness, and Lord, I pray that we would get to experience it more and more, more and more often. And as we get these glimpses, as we get these reminders of your goodness and the pleasantness that it is when we're in unity together, God, let that be one of the many things that points us back to you, that reminds us that there is a day coming where Christ reigns and where we dwell in unity together forever. We long for that day, but until that day comes, Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength to be able to pursue it here on earth now. God, as we go into the world to be the lights of the world you have made us to be, help us to shine brightly and help us to help one another shine brightly. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.